April is the cruelest month. What kind of inspirational sermon title is that, for goodness sake? It's actually the first line of a poem by T.S. Eliot entitled The Wasteland, also cheery, um, which I didn't include in the readings. I'm suspicious of poems with footnotes. But whatever Eliot may have intended, my own interpretation of this line is most effectively encapsulated in the poem that you did hear in the reading by Edna St. Vincent Millay. To what purpose, April, do you return again? Beauty is not enough. Again, hardly lighthearted stuff, rather dark, depressing, full of despair, Where is your minister going with this? Beauty is not enough. Life in itself, she writes, is nothing. An empty cup. A flight of uncarpeted stairs. I just gave you a clue to the order of service cover there. but um, An empty cup. A flight of uncarpeted stairs. How do I build a sermon around that? Do I expect that such sentiments will be inspiring? Nurturing, as is our theme for the month? Yes. Actually, I do, but let me explain. There are times when I see the world as darkly as Edna St. Vincent Millay did in her poem. And understand, I'm not here even talking specifically about tragic or difficult circumstances. This darkness arises not because of anything in particular that's happened, but just because of where I find myself in the whole scheme of things. It is, to use a word that is no longer as popular as it was when I was growing up, existential. It is not concerned with the clothing that adorns any particular day in my life. It is provoked by examining the very fabric of existence. Life, I may say, along with Shakespeare, is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. At the heart of what I am, I find at times an empty cup, a flight of uncarpeted stairs which I traverse alone, and beauty is not enough to wipe away those images. Spring is not enough to distract me. No glad tidings of rebirth can reach me in that place. Having felt that way, it is maybe just reassuring to me to read of other people who describe that same vision, who have survived that darkness, to tell about it. That's part of it, maybe. But if so, why dwell on such things at all? I've felt this way, other people have felt this way, but why perpetuate this feeling? You may be frustrated with what seems to be the focus of the sermon today, and you are in good company. Poet Robert Browning, who we heard from, he felt similarly about some of the dark poets of his day. And he said, death, death, it is this harping on death that I despise so much. In art and literature, the shadow of death, call it what you will, despair, negation, indifference is upon us. But what fools who talk thus. 
You see, according to writer G.K. Chesterton, Robert Browning was an optimist, and his optimism was, quote, founded upon the absolute sight and sound and smell and handling of things. He was enamored of the natural world. And Chesterton imagines him replying to the question, is life worth living? Not with some well-reasoned justification, but by saying, crimson toadstools in Hampshire. In other words, he did not care for idle philosophizing, but found his peace in the particulars of a miraculous world. Is life worth living? If Browning had lived in these parts, he might have answered, California poppies, orange heads bobbing in the breeze, or starfish clinging to the undersides of boulders on Avila Beach. And this is an orientation toward life that we Unitarian Universalists understand. From our pagan and Wiccan and earth-centered sources and our transcendentalist roots, we have always looked to the natural world in the search for truth and meaning. It is why we may find Malay's poem to be, well, sacrilegious. Who is she to say that the beauty of the natural world is not enough? Who is she to scoff at the promise of spring, to call April an idiot? Is she so cut off from nature that she cannot appreciate it, perhaps caught in an urban spin of literary parties that leave her hungover and despairing? There must be some explanation, right? So I started investigating Malay's life a bit, looking to answer some of these very questions. Imagine my surprise in running across, across a memoir of Malay by Vincent Sheehan called The Indigo Bunting, in which he recounts Malay's close relationship with the birds around her house and her affinity with the natural world in general and the ways that she taught him about these things. And he says this of the woman who wrote, Beauty is not enough. Quote, Description observation, the delicate perception of visible beauty meant as much to her as to all or most poets. It seemed at times to be more essential to her being or at any rate more permanent than any emotion. So we cannot pass off the dark vision of her poem with the explanation that this is a woman who simply could not appreciate or did not take the time to appreciate and understand nature. On the contrary, nature was central to her understanding of life. So what then? Was Malay seemingly attuned to nature, one of those self-obsessed poets when it came to the plight of other humans, alienated from the people around her, despairing of life because she never gave of herself to join with the fight for justice? It's a reasonable follow-up question for we Unitarian Universalists to ask. If nature is not the only thing central to our common religious understanding, it may be the work of social justice that shares that central position. So where was Malay in the struggles of her day? Well, surprise again, she bravely stood up to defend anarchists Sacco and Vanzetti when they were convicted with questionable evidence of a bombing. 
She published a poem in the New Yorker called Justice Denied in Massachusetts, opening herself up to ridicule from the critics, some of whom advised her to continue writing real poetry and not political diatribes. So these attempts on my part to explain away her poem, to diagnose her pessimism from a distance, has come to naught. What then do we make of it? Why insist on making anything of it at all? Why is there something in me that wishes to talk her out of it? Because that's what we often do with one another. We mean to be helpful when a friend or acquaintance is depressed and we say in various ways, oh, just look at the beauty around you. It is a stunningly nice day. The sun is shining. Just get out there and walk or ride a bike and take that air into your lungs and the amazingly sweet smell of fruit and flowers and walk by the majestic ocean and let the waves take your troubles away. You ever done that? I know I have or at least thought it. But I can tell you I have never in all my life and all my years of offering pastoral care, I have never heard anyone say, you know, I was feeling very depressed until a friend came over and pointed out what a nice day it was. And then poof, I felt so much better. I've never heard that. And yet, we, helpful friends and family members and fellow congregants, keep trying that strategy. Author and educator Parker Palmer, speaking of his own depression and being the recipient of this kind of helpful advice, said, Well-intentioned as it may be, this kind of counsel is ultimately more depressing than encouraging. I know intellectually that it is a beautiful day. And I know intellectually that those flowers smell perfumed and lovely to other people. But I don't have an ounce of capacity in my own body to really experience that beauty or that loveliness. So the encouragement to get outdoors and see how lovely it is turns out to be a depressing reminder of my own incapacity. Yet we keep taking on the task of trying to talk someone out of the darkness, trying to convince the one who suffers to whistle a happy tune. But hear this, singing the sunny side of the street will not help me when I am feeling like a motherless child a long way from home. We don't need to treat each other's depression as a personal affront or a contagious disease that we may catch if we don't fix it first, or as a condition that is not really just a part of life. That's why I think I need to take a look at my impulse to quickly counter a vision like Edna St. Vincent Millay offers. I think we dismiss the truth of what she says at our own risk. I think that religions that cannot open up to visions such as these end up being irrelevant. Religious people run frightened from the harshness of existence or try to explain it away with complex theological language or attempt to even it all out in the next life, and none of that rings quite true, does it? 
There is a darkness to this life we lead that cannot be explained away. And if we cannot admit that to each other here, where we covenant to explore the whole of life and death, then where? There's a new book out entitled Lost Connections. Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions by Johan Hari. I won't have time to share very much of it in this sermon, but it really struck me, and it may appear later in some sermons. But one of the things I was struck by was the very title, Lost Connections. And I thought about our mission, Deepening Connections. Now, the title talks about solutions, and I don't want to give the impression that there are easy fixes, but the point is that how we connect with one another and with the world matters deeply. And it matters when we are talking about depression. And one of the ways we seek to deepen connections in our mission is by nurturing spiritual growth, which brings us back to nurturing, which is the theme for this month of services. See how that works? It all comes around again. There really is a plan. I don't just come up with these things on Saturday night. How do we nurture spiritual growth in ourselves and in one another? One of the ways, I think, is to explicitly accept What is hard? Acknowledge it. Walk faithfully beside one another as we each experience it. Life is difficult, wrote M. Scott Peck. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, Once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. (coughs) Now that paragraph moves very quickly from acceptance to transcendence. In real life, it doesn't move that quickly. And I think that's why Peck writes, once we truly know and follows it with once we truly understand and accept that life is difficult because that has to be lived out. It is not rush me through acceptance so that I can now reach transcendence. Further, I don't think it happens once and for all. I think we keep returning to this reality. I think we need to acknowledge and accept that life can be difficult and painful and sad and sometimes feel hopeless. There is truth in the vision that Malay offers. And while there is truth there, it is not the whole truth. You know that. I know that. And listen, Edna St. Vincent Millay knew that. She had to. Otherwise, why write the poem? If the vision she had was the sum total of existence, there's not much point in writing it down, is there? The darkest visions of art contain an optimism 
that belies the totality of what they express because the artist felt that creating and sharing the vision mattered. That means there is something that lives outside the words on the page, the paint on the canvas, the notes in the song, a hope that even when one feels caught in an inescapable meaninglessness, there is a reason to express that. And there is a reason, I think, to express that here. Not because that feeling is wrong and we can quickly clear up your depression with some ready-made answers. And not because it is the capital T truth. And we may as well all give up. Because we Unitarian Universalists don't have that sort of relationship to truth, do we? We understand that all of the truths we may hold are partial. By truly accepting that fact, we don't need to be scared of dark visions because we believe also in the light. Neither do we hold on to that light too tightly, trying to gloss over the darkness that we know is real. At the core of much religious thought, you find our old friend, paradox. We Unitarian Universalists can embrace paradox unashamedly because we don't need to explain it. We don't need to suppress it. We don't need to try and erase it. When we open our arms to life and death, we open our arms to paradox and we can just let it be. I am drawn to those writers who are unafraid to tackle the bitterest view sometimes of our human condition. And though I have spent this sermon talking mostly about writers, I want to stress here that we are all in the act of creation every day, creating meaning from our experiences and our perceptions. And I know that I am drawn to those people who are unafraid to look at the darkness because they know that even the truth of death is a partial truth. I know that we need not fear the darkness nor be anything other than honest with each other. And I believe that darkness and light, the bitter and the sweet, the painful and the sublime are caught up in a wider, deeper, stronger truth that we can only glimpse when our hearts are wide open and that we can never quite explain. Trusting, too, that we can make it through, that we can weather the inevitable storms that will get by with a little help from our friends.